Well, we are in part two of our sermon series called Biblical, or I'm sorry, called On Track, Biblical Wisdom for Today. Uh, this is a picture at Ontario State Beach Park. You locals probably know it, know it as what, Charlotte Beach? Is that right? The sign says Ontario State Beach. That was so confusing when we moved here. And I went, why do they call it one thing and the sign says something else? I'm sure there's a whole story there. I don't need to know it. But sometimes I'm sitting in my office and I'm studying and my brain just starts going stir crazy. And one of the benefits of my job is I can get out of my office. And and sometimes I just say, look, if I'm going to give this the attention that it deserves and the brain power that it needs, I need to get away. And so this is one of my favorite places to go. Uh, My time there is probably dwindling with the winter coming on. But I love to go. There's a bunch of picnic tables, and I can sit there, and the breeze just kind of comes off the lake, and I can look at the sailboats and study and read and write notes and prepare for these sermons. So I was sitting there one day. It was a few weeks ago. And out on the lake, I see this gigantic ship coming in. And I think, that I've never seen such a large ship on one of the Great Lakes coming that close to Rochester I was really impressed. And I I had heard stories about uh, this ship that would go in and I think drop off supplies at a cement plant or something like that. So I assume that's what this was. But it's out there and that hadn't quite registered yet. And I see it turn and it begins going up the Genesee River. Now, if you've been there, it's not a really wide river. And it's one of, it was one of those situations where I thought, there's no way that boat is going to fit in that river. There's just no physical way. But there it was, and it was, I don't know, maybe two or three football fields away from me. That's how I measure distance, evidently. And uh, I'm looking at this thing, and it was just enormous. And I wanted to take a picture of it for my kids to show them that, that I had seen this really cool site. But I thought, how are you going to get a sense of the size of it? Because it's really tough when you see something large far away to get a true sense of just how big it was. And then I realized something. I looked a little closer. Right here, do you see that red dot? Not, not this red dot, that's me. <laughs> but do you see that little red dot I'm trying to circle there? Do you see it? There? It's just a little. That was a person. That's a person standing right on the edge of the river. And the boat, I, I mean, from where I was sitting, it looked like they could have reached out and touched it. Probably not. That, and then there's a few other dots, and I may get this wrong, but some of these dots on the ship here our workers, and they're standing there. And that really helped me because all of a sudden I had a point of reference for the perspective of this thing, the size, the enormity of, of this ship. Now, don't get me wrong. I know there's, there's a lot of boats in the world much bigger than this one, but this is what impressed me. It doesn't take much. So there I am. And I think sometimes we are faced with things, especially when we open God's Word, And we study the character and the nature of God. And as we talk about God's wisdom, we are confronted with something that is so enormous, so beyond what we can comprehend and wrap our minds around. And one of the things I love about Scripture is that God understands this. He understands our limitations. And he loves us and shows us mercy even in those limitations. And it's like God comes to us and says, look, I'm going to help you to get a better understanding of who I am. So open up with me to Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to look at the greatness of God's wisdom. 
And really in saying that, I should explain, ultimately today we're looking at the greatness of God. Because if you want to understand the greatness of his wisdom, I could go point by point where he reveals things and teaches us things, and I could try to convince you how much sense it makes and how wise it is in this world. And we'll be doing that in future sermons as we walk through this series. But I think if we're going to get a sense of how great God's wisdom is, we need to start by just accepting and being amazed at how great God is. Because if he is great and he tells us things about our life, about our world, our personality, our purpose in this world, if he is great, then his wisdom is also great. My hope this morning is not to give you an educational experience. I pride myself, I think, I hope, on having a lot of content to my sermons. Today I want you to be amazed, not at me, at God and his greatness. Because that's what I see from Isaiah chapter 40. A little bit of context before we dig in. God's people, when we get to this point in Scripture, God's people, the Israelites, have been in captivity for a few hundred years. If you know a little bit of the Old Testament story, he saves them out of Egypt, he calls them into the wilderness, he rescues them, he walks with them into the promised land, he deposits them, saves them in the promised land, they're with him, everything's going great. And you have King David, you have King Solomon, and things really start going downhill. And they're unfaithful. And God sends prophet after prophet saying, hey, you need to come back. You need to turn back to me. Things are not going well. You need to trust me and what I'm telling you. And they don't. And he says, look, if the only way to make you come back to me is to have you experience the direction you're going in, then that's what I will allow. And in many ways, the exile in the Old Testament is God's removal of his hand of protection and allowing them to experience the consequences of their choices. And so they're conquered by a foreign nation so much greater than they are. And that nation gets conquered by another one, and eventually we come to Isaiah 40, and and they're under the captivity of the Babylonian Empire. And they're wondering, God, when? When are you going to fulfill this plan that you told us about? When, When are these great promises that you gave to our forefathers, when are they going to come to pass? Because I'm not seeing it. And they're struggling in their day-to-day life with the things that are right there in front of them. And they're struggling. And maybe you can identify with that. And so in Isaiah chapter 40, begins a message, a strong message of hope and deliverance. And God is telling his people he's going to bring them back home. He's telling them that the promises he gave to them so long ago are going to be fulfilled. But in order to have them trust him in this, He's going to give them a glimpse of his greatness. I think we need a profound glimpse of God's greatness today. So let's look at this chapter. We're going to start in verses 1 through 11. It starts with three important messages. Now we're going to move through this quickly because I want to get to sort of the center of this chapter, the middle of it, but I do want to set it up. So there are three important messages that God tells his prophet to tell the people. And the first one is is in verses 1 through 5. He says, comfort. It's a good message, isn't it? Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. And every mountain and hill made low. 
The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so in this first message that the prophet Isaiah is to proclaim here in this chapter, he's already given other messages, the message is one of comfort. It's a comfort that God is going to accomplish his plan that God has not in any way, shape, or form forgotten them, neglected them, or, or let go of them. He has a plan, and that plan is that he is going to come and be with his people. And he will be with them forever. Then he gives them a second message, verses 6 through 8. This one is not as great. A voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass. And all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God endures forever. This one is not such a great message, is it? Here he is pronouncing hope and salvation and God's great plan and trust in God. And then he says, ah, but we need to talk about the other side. We need to talk about people for a second. You see, people will fail. People will let us down. And when we say people will let us down, we need to be careful that we don't exclude ourselves from that category. See, we'll let ourselves down. People are fragile, and we will fail. In many ways, at this, in this message of hope, as God is giving them a glimpse of his, his greatness and how he's going to save them, he's reminding them of what got them in trouble in the first place, They had trusted in themselves. They had trusted in foreign armies around them. They had trusted in many different people. But they had lost their trust in God. So he's warning them. And then in 7 and 8, he's saying, And I am greater. And then we come to the third message, verses 9 through 11. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift your voice with a shout, lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Say to the sovereign Lord, or see the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that are young. Here we have the third message. And in many ways, the rest of the chapter continues this message. It is a message that God not only has a plan, but his plan will succeed. He is sovereign. He is powerful. He is bringing his reward with him. He will gather his people and care for them forever and ever. So let's put ourselves in their place. Here they are in a long and troubled history, a long and frustrating history, a long, frustrating, and in many places, a hopeless history as they're looking at these huge spans of time of being in captivity or of being enslaved in Egypt, of people being unfaithful, one leader after another after another being unfaithful, and they're going, really, God, again? Now you're promising us again? Why should we trust you? Do you ever think that? I mean, God, really, with all the mess in this world, and and, uh, the pastor gets up and he says it every week, you've got a plan, and where is it? It's hard to trust God. I think it's good to be honest with ourselves. It is hard to trust God. And so God is helping us in Isaiah chapter 40. Because he's not only telling them to trust him, 
He's going to give them a picture of his greatness so they know why they should trust this great God. And so we come to comprehending the greatness of God in verses 12 through 26. Let's start with verse 12. Because God is going to give a season or a series of pictures, images to help us understand just how great he is. These are just a glimpse They're just sort of a beginning of understanding how great God is. So let's look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on scales in the hills in a balance? There's several different images here. I just want to pick out a few. He starts by saying, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? So he's saying, look, okay, I'm going to help you to understand just how great I am. In a sense, he's saying, I want you to understand just how enormous I really am. So that when I give you a promise, you can trust in it. I read this passage and I thought about what it was saying. And I walked down the hallway here to the kitchen. And I got out some measuring cups and spoons. And I made a cup with my hand, because that's what the hollow of your hand is. It's, it's this thing. If you can make a little bowl with your hand, that's the hollow. I know some of you are doing it. Good job. Okay, so I was really impressed with, with the hollow of my hand, because I, I squeezed really tight, and I made it as deep as I could, and I thought, that's pretty impressive. And I put it under the, the tap, and it filled up with a lot more water than I thought my hand could possibly hold, and I thought, that's really impressive, too. And then I took a, a measuring thing, and I dumped it in, and I got a tablespoon of water, and I thought, that's not impressive at all. <laughs> The hollow of my hand holds a tablespoon of water. Now look at what the passage is saying. He measures the waters in the hollow of his hand. I did some research. You see, Google can be a a great help for worship. It it can be a great distraction too, but in this case, I think it was helpful. If you could measure all of the water on the earth, the groundwater, the surface water, and the water vapor in the air, if you could measure it all, it would be about 332.5 million cubic miles of water. It's a huge number. It's a number I can't comprehend whatsoever. So I thought, uh, what if we could break that down to something I can begin to grasp? Do you remember Hurricane Katrina? you remember Hurricane Sandy? you remember seeing the pictures of city blocks and whole city areas under few feet of water? It's a huge catastrophe. It's just a massive amount of water. If you were to take the surface, the entire surface of the United States, that's about 3.8 million square miles, and you were to cover it with water, guess how deep that would have to be to equal all the water in the world? Throw out a number of miles. How many? 100. Yeah, you're pretty close, actually. It was 87 miles deep. That's from here to outer space, in case you're wondering. That's how much water. I can't even fathom the amount of water. That is so far beyond what I can comprehend. And God says to his people, that fits right here. I can hold it in my hand. You want to know how great your God is? He can hold the waters in the hollow of his hand. It says, with the breadth of his hand, he marked off the heavens. I like doing woodworking. I really like it. It's kind of one of my hobbies. And in woodworking, I have a tape measure. Or or sometimes, if it's a small thing, I can use a, 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 what do you call it, a foot ruler, I guess. You know, just a regular 12-inch ruler. I have little 6-inch ones, too, for little tiny things. And they're real simple. See, in the Old Testament, in the olden days, they didn't have 
rulers quite yet. They would use the breadth of their hand. It was from the tip of the thumb to the tip of the finger, a hand breadth. This worked okay as long as it was the same person's hand over and over again. Otherwise, you were in trouble. So if you're making something small, say a cutting board or something, you could do that. You could just lay out your hand and say, okay, it's about that far and go over to the wood and make the mark. No big deal. Now, let's imagine you're building a house. You're going to walk around your house and measure every foundation wall and every wall and the roof and the chimney. You're going to use your hand breadth. I mean, even for me as a carpenter, am I going to use my foot ruler? Am I even going to use my tape measure? Well, maybe, but it's a little bit bigger. What if I'm building a city? Well, now those things won't work. I'm not going to measure a city with the breadth of my hand. That's way too small. That would take forever. I can't even measure it with my tape measure. I might get 25 feet, maybe 100 feet. I don't know, Mark, are there bigger ones? What's the biggest tape measure you have? 100 feet, okay? Try to build a city with a 100-foot tape measure. I mean, that's going to take forever. So what do they use? Surveying equipment. Well, tripod, they scope through it, and they can measure how the distance. Okay, let's say you want to measure the distance to the moon. Is the surveying equipment going to help you? Not really. You need something more, something bigger, because it's more complicated, and it's greater in number, and, and it's too difficult for that measurement technique, and so you're going to need some sort of telescope. What if you're measuring the universe? The extreme size of the universe. Well, now you're going to need something even greater. I'm not even sure that scientists have something that great. I'm not sure we can comprehend and come to a measurement of the universe that is so far beyond what we can possibly do. And God holds out his hand and says, I got this. The universe is like from there to there. That's how great our God is. These things are not hard for him. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, look, let's take the simplest things that you can imagine and the way that works for you is like how the universe and all the water in the world works for me. That's how great our God is. But he's going to give us another one. Look at the end of verse 12. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales? Have you ever weighed something? Have you ever tried to weigh your luggage to go to the airport? That's hard, right? Because if you use a little bathroom scale, and you're trying to figure out how do I how do I put it on there, and I can't see it, and it's too big, and you know I got to lift it up there, and it's really heavy, and that's just a piece of luggage. What if you're getting something heavier? You have to be able to physically move that thing onto the scale. The scale has to be great enough to hold it. That's hard if it gets heavy. So I thought, what's what's something heavy? Because here he's talking about. Who has taken the dust and the mountains and weighed them? Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world. Somebody calculated it weighs about 357 trillion pounds. That's a three, a five, and a seven with 12 zeros after it. Now again, that's a number I can't comprehend, so I try to put it into something I can't, that my feeble mind can wrap itself around. And I took something that's heavy for me, a car. I can't lift the car. Maybe you can. I have a jack that'll lift the car. And I thought, how many cars are in the world? So I looked that up. Somebody's figured that out, too. They counted them all, evidently. It's probably a government job. So, no, all the cars in the world. So then I looked up, what's the average weight of a car, a truck, a semi? This is why I spend my time or how I spend my time, okay? So if you take all the cars in the world and you multiply it by the average weight of a car, there are... or, or all of it would weigh about 20 trillion pounds. That's a lot of cars. All of the cars in the world 
are still 18 times lighter than one mountain. Granted, it's a big mountain. Now, that's one mountain. Take Mount Everest, and then K2, and whatever, those are the only two mountains I think I know the name of, okay? But take all the mountains in the world, then go to the hills, then go to the dirt and the sand and the dust. Put it all together. And God says, this is an easy thing for me to lift it all up, put it on a scale and say, that's exactly what it weighs. Guys, this is the greatness of our God. He is amazing. And there is a wisdom in it. Look at verse 13 and 14. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? If God is, since God is this great, what we just described there, since he is that great, how are we going to come to him and say, okay, God, let me tell you how this is going to go today. I'm going to do this and you're going to do this. And if you would just work this out, this will all go great. And if you would follow my plan, that would be great. Think of how silly that is. Our God is so great, we can't even comprehend him, let alone instruct him in how to do things. And I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I would put mine up. I do it all the time. I do it all the time. I pray to God and I'll say, God, this is what I want to see happen. God, why aren't you doing this? God, you should do this. God, why aren't you doing this? This is really what should happen right now. God, I'm struggling in my faith because you're not doing what I'm telling you to do. And God's saying, yeah, that's because I'm doing something way better. I'm great and you need to trust me. His wisdom is so great. Who are we to give him advice? He goes on to talk about how he's greater than all other powers. Verse 15, Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. God says, look, I'm greater than all these powers. Any of these things that we can imagine that are extremely powerful, God is saying, I'm greater than. Specifically here, he's saying, I'm greater than all nations. They were enslaved in Babylon, a world superpower. The army of Babylon, the, the size of their influence in the world was so great for the little measly Israelites to hear this message and think, you're going to do what? You're going to deliver us from Babylon? And God says, yes, because it's easy for me. The Babylonians are nothing to me. They're like a drop in the bucket. All of the natural resources, they mentioned Lebanon, which had these enormous trees. He says, look, even if you took all the trees of Lebanon and put them together, it would be a very impressive fire. He says it would mean nothing to me. That's how great our God is. He is greater than the nations and the superpowers. Look, when you turn on the TV and you hear about unrest around the world, we need to be concerned. We need to pray. But we need to also remind ourselves and our families and our churches, our God is greater. He's got this. He says he's greater than idols. You see, an idol was an attempt to look for meaning and hope. 
It was an attempt on, on people's parts to, to find something to worship that would make sense of their life. And so what they would do is say, I, I'm struggling, I can't do this. And so they would go out and they would get some wood or they would get some metal and they would set it up and they would bow down and worship it and say, this is my God, this is what will help me. And we look at that and say, oh, you've got to be kidding me, that is so dumb. We do the same thing. How easy is it to spend our whole life trying to get a good education, which is good, kids stay in school, try to get a good education, try to get a good job, try to impress your boss, try to climb the corporate ladder. And all of a sudden, in order to keep that job, you've got to put in more time at work. You've got to give more of your energies. Maybe you have to bend your morals just a little bit. You say, I've got to do it. My job's important. I'm building up the 501K. I'm getting to, to retirement. I've got to do this. I have to rearrange my life around my work. This is what's important. Guess what you just did? You made an idol. And you're worshiping it. Parents, how many of us say, you know, my kids have to have the best sports team. Got to have the best coach. They've got to be on the traveling league. They've got to do it week after week after week. You know, we're going to miss church. We're going to miss it every single week for a few months because this is soccer season. We have to do it. There's no other choice. This is what's going to get my kid through college. This is what's going to help them in their life. Guess what you just did and led your children in doing? Idolatry. You just created an idol. And you're worshiping it. We are just as prone to idolatry today as they were back then. But the message that God is telling them is all those things that we can possibly create, all those things that we can look for help in and hope in, God is greater than. Greater than. God is greater than any of our idols. Then he goes on in verses 21 and 26 and he talks about the greatness of his dwelling place. You see, when a king wanted to show off how great he was, he would make a temple, or I'm sorry, a palace. And when you walked into the palace in the throne room of the king, you would see how great that king was. If the throne room was a couple of two-by-fours thrown together the size of a small shed, you wouldn't be very impressed with that king. But if you walk in and it's enormous with marbled columns and gilded gold around the top and with all these beautifully painted things on the walls, you would say, this is an amazing king. This guy is impressive. Look at what God says about his throne room in verse 21. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He, God, sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. Think of this image for a second. God's saying, you want to know what I used to build my dwelling place? You want to be impressed with my building materials and and the vastness of my palace? Just look up. He says, the heavens are my dwelling place. I made the stars. I made the sky. I made the earth. I spread them out. I remember as a kid trying to make my bed. I actually did it every once in a while, occasionally when my mom forced me. And when I was really little, I struggled because the sheets were too big. I I, I couldn't hold them up. I, I couldn't lay them out flat. So this is what I would do. I would get up on the head of my bed. I would kind of kick my pillow on the floor, get up on the head, and I would grab one end and just start shaking it like this, right? And the more I shook, if I was really lucky, it would lay out flat on the bed. And then I would tuck it in and I was done. 
My brother hated this. My brother was three years older than me, and he saw this as a colossal waste of time, which it was. But he just couldn't understand. Why don't you just grab it and spread it out? I would say, because I'm too little. I can't reach that far. I can't spread it that easily. Have you ever tried to spread out a huge tarp? Have you ever tried to put a tarp over a house? Guess, guess what? You better have a couple friends, because that's really big. There's no way you're going to shake that thing and spread it out. Could you imagine raising up a circus tent? You're not just going to go in there one day as a weekend warrior and set that thing up. No way. It's huge. God says he takes hold of the heavens and he spreads them out and he makes them his tent, his dwelling place. That's the greatness of our God. The greatness of his dwelling place. He says in verses 23 through 26, he is greater than all earthly leaders. He brings princes to naught, reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes, look to the heavens who created all these. He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Here they are, captives in a foreign land with a very impressive ruler. Great power, great palace, great army. And God says, you see all that? That's nothing. All that power, all that wealth, all that might compared to God's glory is nothing. He says, I can remove that ruler like that. Christians, we're coming up on an election season. Let's have a proper perspective on the leader of our country. I hope we have a great person there. I hope it's the right person, but let's never forget it's just a person. And God is greater. I hope we spend more time getting to know the God who raises up leaders in this world than we do the leaders themselves. I hope we put more hope in the God who is in control over all the nations of the world than just hoping in one person that happens to sit in a White House. God is greater than all the earthly leaders and powers of this world. So how do we respond? How do we take this huge picture of who God is and of his great wisdom and respond? Well, The prophet actually helps us here. Look at verse 27. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. In his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary. Even young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. How do we respond to God's great wisdom? Number one, stop complaining. You see it right there? Verse 27, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? If we trust in a God who is great, who has great wisdom, who is powerfully at work in our life, our nation, our country, our our world, if we truly believe all that, why are we complaining? You see, a complaint is an idea that we're in charge. 
It's an expression that if things would have gone our way, that would have been much, much better. It's a belief that we have the right, maybe even the responsibility, to tell the world how it should be. That's what a complaint is. If we truly understand how great God is, why are we complaining? And even more than that, why are we complaining to God? Christians, how prone are we to say, God, do you see the mess of our country? Of course he sees it. Do you know what's going on? Of course he knows what's going on. Are you going to do anything about it? Of course he's doing something about it. The same thing he always has been doing. His great plan has been at work from Genesis to Revelation. God is great. We need to quit complaining. And then we, we need to respond to his great wisdom by accepting it. God's understanding, his wisdom is beyond our comprehension. He sees the whole picture. He sees everything that is going on in this world. Last week, I, I used the illustration, and it's on our logo here, of the train tracks in, in a switchyard and how complicating it is, how complicated it is. We talked about how we are navigating these choices and how difficult it is. And as we look at that situation, one of the things we need to understand is that there is a room somewhere with a giant board and all these tracks all over it. And on that board, there are lights. And those lights show where all the trains are. And there is somebody looking at every single track, every single light. They know where they all are and where they should go. Could you imagine the driver of a train hearing from that person, seeing the light change, seeing which track they should go on and saying, no, that's a bad idea. I see like two tracks in front of me. Why should I go that way? That doesn't make any sense. We need to accept that because God is great, he not only sees more than we do, he sees everything. Everything in the entire world. We need to accept that his wisdom is great. Then finally, we need to trust. If God is this great, and he is, and he gives us his word and tells us which way to go, and he does. And he gives us his son to die on the cross to save us from our sins and raise us from the dead, promising eternal life for all who believe, and he does. We need to trust him. There are a lot of places in this world you can turn to for hope. None of it compares to the greatness of our God. Here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to think about anything you trust in. Anything at all. Big, small, doesn't matter. And then take that and compare it to God. Compare it to the greatness of God. If you can find anything in your life that you are trusting in that is greater than the God that has revealed himself to us in Scripture, I will eat this book. Because there is nothing in this world greater than God. We need to compare everything to him. But there's something else. This passage is about salvation. God is going to deliver his people. He's going to bring them back home. But it looks beyond just this moment in history. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. You see, a few hundred years later, God would raise up another prophet, a man by the name of John the Baptist. And he would also give that prophet a message. In fact, the words of the message were almost identical to what had been given to the prophet Isaiah. He was basically quoting straight out of Isaiah. 
Look at what he says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. You see, the people in Jesus' day would have known their scripture. In fact, a lot of them would have had most of the scripture memorized. And so when a prophet came along and quoted just a little verse, they would have known the rest of it. It would have, it'd be like the song lyrics that somebody starts quoting and you finish the quote. That's how it was to them. And so when John says, prepare the way of the Lord, they would have remembered the Lord is coming in his glory and everybody's going to see him. God is coming to be with his people. Who's John talking about? Jesus. God with us. God in his greatness, this God who can hold the waters in the the hollow of his hand, that can weigh the mountains, that can stretch out the heavens, that God was born in a manger, lived among us, shepherded his people, loved them, touched the leper, made the blind person see, and then went to the cross. And he took your sin and my sin, and he died in our place. That's also the greatness of God at work. And we need to be amazed at the greatness of God. Next week, we're going to look at God's wise plan. We'll do an overview of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. This plan that has been going on in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and is still going on today, you're a part of it. And I'm a part of it. But not only do we need to know that, but we need to know the great God behind that plan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your greatness is beyond what any of us can imagine. And so I praise you for your mercy and your grace that gives us glimpses that we can understand. Glimpses of of Scripture, glimpses of images like weighing water or weighing mountains. But Father, more than that, you gave us a glimpse through Jesus Christ. Father, you so want us to know you and to be amazed at your greatness that we might trust in your greatness. And so I pray that you would forgive us for being caught up in lesser things. And I pray that you would restore to us the ability to be amazed at who you are. I pray that we would pour over your scripture to get a gigantic view of your power and your might and your wisdom because it's there. You are not a puny God. You are not a small Savior. Your greatness no one can fathom. May we live accepting and trusting in your great wisdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.